I'm Shelley Schlender for How on Earth. This is an extended interview that we did with CU scientist Tom Johnson about longevity and immortality. In the interview, you'll hear him commenting on a new book by James Rollins, a sci-fi thriller called Bloodline, about immortality. Where is the science in that book, and where is the fiction? Here's Tom Johnson's perspective. Tom Johnson, you're a real expert on immortality. Is that fair to say? Yes, I've been alive for close to an immortal period of time. No, I'm just kidding. I think immortality is completely impossible. I mean, obviously, immortality is impossible. But even lifespans that are of biblical length are probably not going to be anything that we see within a similar span of time. So I'm, I'm a large skeptic as to the basic premise of this book. Or any book that talks about immortality. Right. Certainly biological immortality is not going to be possible. There's some possibilities that computer scientists have raised of perhaps being able to encode human personalities and memories into a silicon-based, maybe life form. Silicon-based entities may have a longer lifespan than carbon-based entities. But then we'd have to have the software be immortal to understand that silicon-based life form. Good point. I can't read my silicon-based life forms from 10 years ago that are on tapes that now are only readable by the Pentagon. Well, let's back up and talk about why you're interested in these things and why you know these things. You're one of the world's leaders in looking at ways genetically that potentially might extend life. We've been working on uh, uh, biological approaches using genetics as a handle to uh, extend life, and we've been incredibly successful. Our own work has really been to use an experimental system and to be able to lengthen the life of that experimental system and slow aging. Now, when you say an experimental system, you're not talking about a robot. You're not talking about a person. You're talking about a teeny tiny little round worm called C. elegans is one example of the systems that you look at. That's absolutely correct. This little worm has about a thousand cells. Those cells carry out almost all of the functions that the cells in our body do. You mean even though it's a little tiny worm, it's more like us than not like us? Oh, absolutely. It's much more similar to us than it is to a grain of sand. All life on Earth, as far as we know, is really very highly related to other pieces of life. Still, this little worm, this little roundworm, is easier to figure out because it does not have as many cells as we do. So you can fiddle with it more. We can fiddle with it more, but primarily the reason that we can fiddle with it more is that it is tiny. And just the fact that the normal version of this little animal lives only about three weeks, as opposed to our normal versions now living 80 years, makes it much more manipulatable. How much longer than three weeks have you gotten this little tiny C. elegans roundworm to live? Colleagues of mine in, in Arkansas can get the worm to live almost a year. Okay, let's do some math. So if it lives three weeks, and now they can make it live almost a year. The maximum lifespan has been increased about tenfold. The maximum lifespan of the normal is a little over a month. If this was a person, that'd be like instead of living to be 90, living to be 900. You're into Methuselah there. It's really a Methuselah increase, very biblical. Now, are you doing it using one of the methods that's used in this book, 
bloodline about immortality? None of the things that are mentioned in this book are the approaches that we use. What are you doing then? What we've done is to use the genetic approach. We've identified and manipulated one, or in some cases, several genes. By those manipulations, we see that the worm can actually live longer than normal. What does the gene that you manipulate do? The first gene, and the gene that that I'm associated with, is a gene called age one. Age one. Was the first gene found in any multicellular organism to have an effect on lifespan, and that's, that's why we call it age one. That version of that gene that we originally found increased lifespan about 50%, but it's other versions of this gene and other ways of manipulating this gene that have resulted in the tenfold increase in, in lifespan. Well, what exactly does this gene do in a normal animal? This gene regulates lots of other genes in the genome, maybe about 20% of the total genes in the genome are regulated by this gene that we're talking about, H1. Do you mean that it decides which genes get turned on and which genes get selected to use for other things? Right, exactly. You can think of this gene as being like a regulatory gene that determines when the stoplight is going to turn red or turn green. Well, Tom Johnson, you said that it's like a traffic light. Could we call this H1 gene a traffic cop? Uh, yeah, in some sense, it, it, it stops bad genes or the gene products. When I mention genes, you know, we, we don't think that in most cases it's the gene, but rather a protein encoded by that gene that actually does the work. So it's not, we're not doomed by our genes to have one thing or another happen. What's more important is which genes express themselves and make proteins that do work in our body. This age one is a perfect example because one form of the gene turns off the part of the, the genome that leads to longer life. And surprisingly enough, that's the gene version, that's the version of age one that is found in the cells of the worm and we think found in our own cells. It's in our cells too? And, and the reason that that gene is there is that the gene participates in reproduction. So the organism may live longer, but it fails to reproduce as well. You mean that the traffic cop gene, age one, says, body, let's not reproduce as much. Well, what does that leave room for instead? So instead, that leaves room for a longer lifespan. Does that mean that the cells are better at maintaining and repairing themselves if they're not busy reproducing? Shelley, you've got it. That's, that's the take-home message is that life has to make a choice. There's trade-offs in all decisions that are, that are made by living cells and living organisms. And in this case, this age one and the whole regulatory pathway, the whole pathway of control, is involved in making the decision of whether to live long or whether to have babies. Well, Tom Johnson, does that mean that if all of us wanted to live longer as human beings, we should all stop having babies? I'm not sure that that giving up on reproduction would have much effect on lifespan. As a matter of fact, we know from a lot of studies that it has a detectable effect, but very minor, maybe a month or two. Then when you talk about reproduction, if you're not talking about people making babies, what kind of reproduction are you talking about slowing down in a body? So I am talking about about this kind of reproduction, but the way we could imagine it working in us is that we would leave the normal version of the gene functional up until we had the family that we wanted, 
And then we would alter the function of that gene, kicking in the longevity-mediating genes that we know are present in the genome so that we'd see a longer life, but after we're finished having our last child. A new form of birth control. It, it could be a good target for birth control, too. What is changing in a body? Is it just that the body decides we aren't going to have babies, so we better wait a long time before we die? Or is it that when this gene gets turned on to stop other genes from repro saying reproduce, is it telling anything special to each cell in the body about what each cell should be doing? The, yeah, the gene that we've been talking about, age one, is a very interesting uh, gene in, in humans as well. It's part of an insulin-mediating pathway. We, we know that insulin is one of the key regulatory hormones that goes out to all cells in the organism to regulate glucose uptake, for instance. Well, but Tom Johnson, that's basically what insulin is known for by most people, is as a hormone that lowers blood sugar in your body so that your blood sugar stays lower. When you say regulatory, is that all you mean? I know insulin has for many other functions. And not only that, but we know that there are three and probably four forms of insulin in humans, as well as multiple targets of these insulin. If it's like a general, the initial general order goes out from the commandant, and that's reinterpreted by the colonels, the majors, the lieutenants, and so on, down to the individual cells that are the privates in this particular army. So insulin can tell cells reproduce cell by cell, do as much as you can to reproduce as fast as you can, or it can help tell cells, don't be reproducing right now. Save your energy and take good care of yourself because you might have to last a long time, little cell. Most of those that I'm talking about are functions that actually function primarily at the level of the whole animal, the whole organism. Oh, so you mean that it's, it's like what you said, a general telling the whole system, system, Now's not the time to go out and fight a battle. Now's not the time to multiply across the board and make more soldiers, meaning cells. Now's the time to hunker down and take care of each cell and repair it and maintain it and keep it in good working order. Exactly, exactly. The, another nifty thing about the little animal that I work on is that it uses exactly this pathway for its own ability to survive and it's in its particular niche in the ecology it makes this decision uh, all the time as to whether or not to continue reproducing or instead look for better resources. Age one is part of a decision-making pathway in which the privates and the generals cross-talk to each other until finally a decision is made as to whether there's sufficient food, for instance, in the immediate environment or if the worm should go looking for a better place to live. With this very simple idea, should we multiply and grow from a cellular basis, or should our bodies be working more on taking care of each piece? In the worm, some of the genes that are up-regulated, that are expressed at higher levels as a result of age one alterations, these genes help to protect against the toxic effect of free radicals. They uh, help maintain normal structure of the intracellular parts of the worm during hard times. So it's exactly that decision that has to be made on a second-to-second -second basis as to whether or not individuals should reproduce or instead go into the hunker-down mode. And I like that term, 
hunker down mode because that's exactly what uh, what we see in these very long-lived animals. They've definitely hunkered down and went for lengthening life rather than uh, reproducing like crazy. And I keep picturing somebody being frugal with their money and deciding, should I buy a new pair of jeans or should I take this pair of jeans I have and sew a patch over the place that they're worn out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and invest in the future. But I wanted to talk uh, about another thing related to this book, if, if, if we can switch a little bit. One of the things that I think the, the author did was to look at a website that uh, a colleague and, and friend, actually, named Aubrey de, de Grey, has put together. And this website talks about mechanisms by which we, human beings, could potentially become immortal. The problem with that particular website and the overall approach that Aubrey champions is that there are no data to support the uh, least indication that the manipulations that Aubrey proposes would actually have any efficacy. Okay, so now we're going from your work, which is scientific work that's looking at how to extend life, to science fiction based on some scientific conjectures of what could happen. And in this book, Bloodline, that's part of the adventure is taking those conjectures and seeing how far you can go with them. And you've always been interested, Tom Johnson, in immortality, even though you don't believe in it. You're a big fan of books about immortality. I, I am. I actually have a, a small collection, maybe a, a few dozen books. I'm sure it's nowhere near, near complete because immortality has been one of mankind's greatest obsessions. Your friend, his name is Aubrey de Grey, loves to conjecture about these things too. He's a scientist, but your caution is that scientific conjecture is not the same as scientific reality? Very well put. Aubrey's PhD is actually in computer sciences, and he uh, was the curator at, the, at Cambridge University in the UK of the uh, genetic compendium on fruit flies. He's since left that job, and I'm, I'm actually not sure what he's doing. He may be working full-time now on the Methuselah Project, which is his name for this uh, attempt to really extend human lifespan. Now, that's a project which involves mice at this point, seeing how old a mouse you can get. How long do mice live, and how old is the oldest mouse now? Aubrey actually has instituted a prize for increasing the lifespan of a mouse. So this is actually experimental data that would have to be presented to the committee that would judge the efficacy of this, and I'm one of the people on the committee. The record for life extension in in a mouse is, I think, about 60% increase. A mouse, the average life of a healthy, robust lab mouse is probably about 28 months. The record for an individual mouse, I think, is just under five years. So 28 months up to five years, which is twice as long. But that record, I think, is held by just one individual mouse. So if you look at the average lifespan of that long-lived strain, I'm not exactly sure, but it's probably on the order of about 53, 54 months. But still, that's pretty good. That'd be like a person living to be 250 years old, because the oldest person we have on record is about 125. Right. Yeah, I agree. It's more or less a doubling of the maximum uh, lifespan, or maybe a little less, but it's still a long way from being immortal. Did they do the same thing with that mouse that you did with your little roundworms to make it live longer? Yeah, so part of, part of that mouse's endowment 
was a change in a gene uh, that was very similar, at least, to age one. And the version, the mouse version of age one does appear to be implicated, but we still don't know for sure. This is another good example of about why I work in the worm, because it's much easier to confirm these, uh, these uh, musings and to actually do the uh, experimental tests in a little animal like the worm than it is even in a mouse. Yeah, mouse has a few more cells. And it just lives a lot longer. Doing an experiment takes 10 times as long. But still, it's, it's tantalizing, twice as long and healthy. This is the other part. Your little roundworms and these little mice tend to be healthy longer. Right, yeah, no, that's really an important point. It's, it's my conjecture that we will never really separate healthy aging from overall longevity, that the only way that individuals are going to live a, lo a long time is for that to be a healthy long time. This doesn't mean that there may not be a period of morbidity at the end of life. Even Madame Jacques who is the world record, she lived 122. But in any case, she needed uh, a wheelchair toward the end of her life. But she led an amazingly healthy life. She was riding a bicycle, I think, up until about seven years before she died. Good health and long lifespan go hand in hand. All right, so we have these examples, and we have this friend of yours whose name is Aubrey de Grey, who has conjectured about possible ways to extend life even further, possibly to immortality. We have an author of a book called Bloodline about ways that people are doing this, the good guys and the bad guys. And... You're skeptical about most of his approaches. If you were to just tick off the ones that you said, there's just not a chance, which ones would be at the top of the list that he mentions? Well, you know, I can't really remember all of the things that he proposes to do, but one that I've uh, sort of appeared in print and in other discussions, there was a great discussion on this uh, that was uh, mediated by uh, the editor um, at MIT in one of the MIT publication several years ago. Um, but one of the fairly fanciful things that uh, is, is suggested is that the mitochondrial genome be eliminated and that uh, the DNA that's in the mitochondria just be moved into the nucleus. And there are some conjectures that might keep the mitochondrial RNA functioning better. Well, let's back up a little bit and talk about this because in our cells, we don't just have one amount of DNA. We actually have two, and one of them is in a sort of immigrant into our, into our bodies called mitochondria. 95% of the total DNA in the cell is in the nucleus, and about 5% in the mitochondria. And as you pointed out, the mitochondrium seems to be an evolutionary interloper that probably occurred two billion, three billion years ago, and actually made metazoan life possible by allowing eukaryotic cells to develop. The mitochondrion is the powerhouse of the cell. Most of the energy that a typical cell uses is generated by the mitochondrion, and a fair amount of that mitochondrial DNA is devoted to proteins that are involved in this energy generation. It was like our cells allowed in an undocumented worker who had a great deal of skills and decided to make it part of the team. And the team skill that the mitochondria has is in converting oxygen and fuel into little pieces of energy that are safe for the body to use. The, the downside of this mitochondrial invasion, and even though it was overall beneficial for the cell, 
is that the things inside the mitochondria don't have the same ability to, to repair themselves as do other aspects of the cell. Even though everything else may be working right, if those batteries start to run down, we're in big trouble. That's exactly right. If the mitochondria can no longer produce energy, there's great deficits. We know that there are human diseases caused by mitochondrial deficits, really extreme versions where newborn infants can barely move due to a lack of uh, accessible energy. Well, and so there's been this strange idea that we could take our DNA in the nucleus and somehow intertwine the mitochondria DNA. It's easy to draw on paper because evolution has done it. Evolution has taken most of the genes from our primitive ancestor that first invaded the primitive eukaryotic cell and moved those genes to the nucleus. But that doesn't mean that genetic engineers could recapitulate that same state, nor does it even mean that there's not some reason why these genes are in the mitochondria. It might well be that they have to function in the mitochondria. None of this is even approached by the fanciful musings that that Audrey puts out, because there's no experimental data on this. These are interesting ideas, but they're just fancies until there's some experiment that asks whether or not any of them uh, have the slightest chance of, of working. There is another aspect to the Bloodlines book that I found interesting, which is that it was discussing how sometimes the way that science progresses is rather shockingly callous. And in the book Bloodlines, it's people whose heads are severed from their bodies and then used to maintain lungs and body organs. That's based on real experiments that were done with animals to separate their bodies from their lungs and their hearts and see if the brain would function without the whole body. That was done on dogs in Russia. Well, this is a a, a very good reason why universities have committees that are known as IACAC committees. I'm actually filling out a form right now on my computer to get permission to perform some uh, experiments on transgenic mice. We have a very rigid control structure in the the Western world that would never allow such atrocities to be done. And I I personally am quite offended to uh, even imagine that such things were done. There's very little reason in my mind, it seems, that we need to impose such kind of suffering on uh, other entities that are living. But these things have happened, and there is that side of good and evil to how science gets done. And even though things like heart-lung machines were moved ahead technologically thanks to those kinds of experiments, the cruelty of it would stop you. Yeah, I'm, I really am uh, very cautious with imposing any sort of unnecessary pain on animals. So that's another part of this science fiction book that's different, is that at least in regular ethical circles, that's not the kind of experiments that get done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not only would it not be done, but someone doing that experiment in our environment would see the inside of a jail cell pretty quickly. How about the artificial intelligence idea that we could take intelligent machines and implant some parts of our brains into them and just let them keep on running and give them the signal, you have to survive. Would they be immortal? Immortality is not really possible because it's constrained by the life of the universe if there aren't numerous other things that are going on before that. Someone can always imagine that in the 
unimaginable future, you know, that even that would not be a limitation, that we would migrate to another universe that was newly made. Now, the author did say, as a theme of his book, that he believes there are immortals who live among us. You don't believe that Methuselah really lived to be six or 800 years old. But what about it? Could it be that somebody has some secret that you don't know about, and they've lived a long time and they're immortals, or that the next generation of children that is born will be immortal? There are certainly possibilities for very long lifespans and people living among us. If someone had a mutation in a gene analogous to age one, they might be able to actually, uh, let's put it at the limit that we now know that age one can go, they, w- they would have a Methuselah-type lifespan. Would they want anyone to know that? I don't think so. I think they would lead a life where they would periodically move away from normal society, reinvent themselves maybe uh, 50 years later, and assume a, a, a new identity. There's 8 billion people in the world Could one of them be this person? Well, interestingly enough, one of the things that human geneticists are very interested in is is asking that question. And we ask it by actually looking, surveying large populations of humans for rare changes in genes that might lead to life extension. And so far, one of the genes that seems to have been targeted several times, it's not age one, but it's a gene immediately downstream of age one. And so we may actually have a gene in the human body that can be altered in a way that we would get long-lived families. What's the name of that gene, and what does it do? In humans, it's called FOXO. In worms, it's called DAF16. The gene is what we call a transcription factor. It's in charge of regulating the armies of soldiers that are downstream involved in changing the cell from a reproductive state to a hunker-down state. A similar gene has definitely been identified in humans, but whether or not that same functionality has been conserved in humans, we're still not completely sure of. I'm actually in a series of email discussions with colleagues all over the world as to whether or not we've really identified this gene. Tom Johnson, if this gene can do these things, and if you tinker with the gene just right, perhaps it will send the right instruction to stop multiplying cells and instead hunker down and take care of your cells for a long time. That's the signal that we want it to have. Could we just do this and how we get our rest and how we meditate and what kind of food we eat? Are there some ways that we could do this just in how we live? My hunch is that we're not going to be able to change the environment sufficiently to allow us to have any place near like a tenfold increase in lifespan. I think we've done tremendous jobs already. If you look at the life expectancy in 1820, when it was started to be recorded in England, as opposed to life expectancy now, where Japanese females are living close to 90 years, we've seen a tripling in female life expectancy. And that has been entirely due to environmental changes. No genetic changes have caused that. But you see, that's all been due to getting rid of accidents, basically. Accidents of being infected with something nasty or getting a a tiger eating you or uh, starving to death, all those kind of accidents. It hasn't been due to necessarily changing the expression of the body to, say, maintain yourselves longer. Right, that's correct. There have been really gross environmental changes 
uh, solving cholera, stopping the spread of cholera by closing up wells that were infected. This was the first proof of epidemiology. It may be that there have always been people who lived to be 90, 100, 110, maybe 120 years old. It could be that we haven't really changed that upper limit yet. I think that's likely to be true. There's very little evidence that we've really pushed the upper limit in any real way. But that's looking at the extreme upper limit, say for what we call supercentenarians, people in excess of 115 years of age. There's very good data that suggests from worldwide population studies that there is uh, dramatic, still going on, a dramatic increase in longevity, even at the, at the top end, so that the rate of survival, for instance, of 90-year-old women and 90-year-old men is getting better as we go through different periods of, of time. All of that's possible, and that's an area you're looking at, is to have people live healthy longer. Perhaps there's some genetic manipulation. That's an interest of yours. In a way, though, when we talk about immortals living among us, isn't that really happening already? There are always new children being born. Whenever it was that the first cell appeared on the face of the earth, we are the children of that first cell, and we're still going. That's the true miracle of life on earth. And it may even be, you know, I'm becoming now a believer, and this is a belief, it's not verifiable as of yet, that life is a natural consequence of physical properties that are spread through the universe, and that the discovery of so many exoplanets will, within my lifetime, another the next 30 or 40 years, I hope, be proved that some of these planets are actually occupied by biological entities and maybe even intelligent entities. So if we want to be immortal, take care of our children. Children are not ours to keep. They're only from us. And they're our step to a life that goes on. And uh, we are not destined to tell them what that life is going to be. I'm Shelley Schlender. You've been listening to an extended interview with Tom Johnson, CU scientist and expert on longevity and aging. For more interviews like this, check our website, howonearthradio.org.